Well, good morning. Taylor, there's a water there next to my chair. I know you got to be running on dry. That was on. He was on fire today, weren't they? Man, Holy Spirit working in the lives of each of us is exciting to me to be in services and to feel the Spirit of God moving among us. Um, too many times today we don't see enough of that in church. Too many times our hearts just kind of go through the motions. And I believe God wants to take us out of the motions and put us into the game. You know, uh, every day when, or every weekend when football teams or, or even basketball teams, before they begin the game, they have what's called a walkthrough. And it's the last practice just before the game starts. And everything's kind of at about 20% of the overall speed of the game. And you're just kind of making your way through, making sure mentally you know where you're supposed to be and, and that you're in the right spot at the right time. And I think for many of us, we, we stay in the walkthrough mode when we need to get in the game mode. And it's a big difference. There's a big difference between the two. And one of the struggles for us in, do, in making that transition is we can get so caught up in what's happening around us that we lose sight of the God who leads us. I don't know if any of you have ever had that experience, but sometimes circumstances of life and things that we're facing can become so distracting and so overwhelming that we lose sight of what God's ready to do in us because all we can see is all the things happening around us. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about, uh, as we continue in our series, Prayers at Work, how God wants to work in and through us to accomplish something that only He can do. Um, how many of you have ever been in a situation where you noticed something happening and you knew it was wrong and you felt like you had to intervene and you had to make it right? Stephen, is that you? You ever been there? My son Stephen has a heightened sense of justice. If he sees something that's wrong and he's aware that it's, wrong, that it's happening and it's wrong, Stephen immediately has to come into the mix. Um, Taylor had some of that too. When Taylor was just a little kid... He was probably 18 months old, two years old. Um, we were at our house, and we were babysitting um, some kids from a family in our church. I guess it was God showing us what was coming, but they had five children, and we were babysitting them so that they could have a night out. And they had a son named Michael, and Michael was about two years older than Taylor, and something was going on. We were playing. I was sitting on the couch, and I would... Michael would run up to me, and I'd tickle him, he'd take off running. He'd run up to me, I'd tickle Well, he'd run up to me, and he slapped me on the leg, and he took off. And Taylor jumped up, and he got between me and Michael, and he said, You don't hit my daddy. <laughs> and Taylor was about this tall. Michael was about this tall. Michael was a big kid, and Taylor was like, You don't hit my daddy. Some of us have that need to step in and to be that, that intermediary, that sheepdog, some people call it, that agent of justice. I've told my kids often that, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? It's not up to us. But I want to be honest, sometimes I think, well, I'm of the Lord, so maybe then I get to be his vengeance. You know, the Lord's going to use something, why can't it be me, amen? But that's not how the Christian life is supposed to be lived. And in our culture today, if you're looking for something to be upset about, you don't have to look very hard, do you? In fact, you could just look to the front area right here, this front row of chairs, and there's a chair missing. 
that somebody decided to do that to distract me this morning. I know who it was. He's in there going, <laughs> giggling over here. I moved your chair. I don't remember moving your chair. But anyway, so, so I looked over and I saw an empty space. I thought, man, I don't know if I like that or not. And then I thought, well, that makes it really easy for Susan to get out. And so if she needs to come out, then she's got an open path right there, right? We always are looking for things to get upset about and get frustrated about. In fact, today, our culture has a whole culture of victimhood. Have you noticed that? Everybody's a victim of something. And it can get frustrating to me sometimes watching and listening to the people. Everybody's got a complaint about something. Somebody offended me. Somehow in 2019, 2018, 2017, I don't know when it all started, but we began to have this idea that we have the right to not be offended. I don't know. I grew up with eight siblings. If I was worried about being offended, I was in trouble. Listen, guys, you're not going to believe this, Danny. I have been duct taped from head to toe like a mummy. Only thing out was my eyes and my nose. It was the first crew cut I ever got. It's the only way to get it out of my hair. If you want to talk about being bullied, my big sister did that to me. All right? Everybody's got a story about something that someone has hurt them or something's done something. And now with the advent of social media... You have this issue that when something happens, there's this idea of mob justice, and everybody rushes in, and everybody has an opinion, and everybody has a solution. But no one's invested in the situation. It's a bunch of anonymous critics that are looking from the outside in, telling people how they should live their lives and what they should do, when they don't actually have anything on the line, no skin in the game, if you will. And in our Bible story that we're going to look at this morning, we see somebody who's in his day facing quite a circumstance, quite a situation. There's a mob mentality that has arisen in this person's life, and, and there's this idea that, that everybody is out to get him and everything is coming against him. And really, he's on the point of running for his life. So with that in mind, turn to Psalm 28. Psalm 28. This morning we're going to look at a, a prayer that works. And again, I want to remind you, these are not prescribed prayers. The, the Bible doesn't say this is the, the words you should use when you pray in this circumstance. But this is a recorded prayer of someone who is in a difficult circumstance, and from it we can learn about the heart behind the prayer. Because remember, it's what's inside. You can say anything you want to say, but what's inside is what really counts, right? You know, I've been a lot of times where I say, I'm sorry. I wasn't sorry, Brother Gene. I'm just sorry I didn't do it worse. Amen? You can say whatever you want to say, but it's not what you say, it's what's in the heart. And so I want you to look at the heart of this individual in Psalm chapter 28. Would you stand with me in honor of his word? We're going to listen to a prayer of King David. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will go down like those who go down to the pit. 
Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Requite to them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite to them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them their recompense, because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the deeds of His hands. He will tear them down and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because He has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, and with my song I shall thank him. The Lord is their strength, and he is a saving defense to his anointed. Save your people, and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also, and carry them forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider the words of this psalm, as we hear the prayer of your servant David, I ask, God, that you speak to our hearts, that each of us would be changed, not by my message, but by the Word of God, that, Lord, you would speak through your Word, that it would pierce us, that it would challenge us, that, Lord, we would be ready to face what comes ahead, knowing you're there with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we're looking today at this idea of mercy and justice. Um, you know, there have been times that I've prayed and I wanted to be like James and John. Lord, just, just rain fire and thunder down upon them. Amen? Amen. Uh, these people, they're, they're aggravating me. They're bothering me. I want to get, get vindicated here. There have been times in my life where I knew that because of what was going on that I was innocent, but I was being persecuted in the midst of it that I was under attack, that I was being uh, ridiculed, that, that people were standing against me even though I had done nothing that I should not have done. And the natural man, Brother Al, the natural man in me wanted to lash out. I want to go fix it. I think that's just man in general, right, Willie? I, I wanted to do something about it, but it's not always ours to do. And here it's the situation with David. We need to understand some of the background information. I told you last week that while the Scripture never really um, expressly condemns David because of the choices that he made regarding marriage, one of the things that was very clear in David's life is the fact that as he married all these different women, each time new problems cropped up. And it wasn't the woman's fault. It was David's fault. But each time, new problems would crop up, and new issues kept coming up as a result of it. And here we find a situation where that's exactly what's happened. One of, the, one of David's children, Absalom, has got in his mind that Absalom should be king instead of David. And so Absalom is trying to take his father's role, and in fact, he's pushed David out. And David's literally on the run for his life when he's writing this psalm. We, we don't know if it's in the very beginning of that or towards the very end of that. There's some evidence maybe that it's towards the very end of that time. But, but David is literally running for his life from his own son. His own son is trying to not only take his kingdom, but in order to take his kingdom, he had to take his life in order to be king. So David is at what I would consider one of the lowest of lows that he could possibly be. Now, the easy thing for us to say is, well, I'd have just taken care of my son. 
would you really? And I love my kids. And I think David's mind was, if I run long enough, maybe God will get his attention. If I just keep going long enough, then I'll leave this up to God. And God will handle it. And I believe that because of what we read in the Scripture. Now, how many of you think that was easy for David to do? I don't think it was easy at all. I think it was an incredibly difficult challenge for David to be in that moment and say, Lord, I'm giving this situation to you, even though I want my justice to be served, even though I want mercy in this situation, even though I feel like I am in the right, I'm waiting upon you. Do you want to be able to do that when you're wronged? I do. And so let's look at how David arrived at that in his prayer, what was going on in his heart in the midst of that. First of all, you see in verses 1 and 2, if you've got your little listening outline, fill that out and so that you can turn it in at the end. Um, if you're one of our, our teenagers or kids, give that to me at the end with your name on it. Somebody forgot their name last week. With your name on it, and then um, it'll get entered into the drawing at the end of the month. So your first blank there is you need to learn how to rest in his righteousness. When, when the world is coming against you, when things are falling apart, and you feel like you deserve something better than what you're getting... You've got to learn how to rest in God's righteousness and not your own. Look at what he said in verses 1 and 2. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent, I will go down like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help. When I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary. David realized that David's righteousness wasn't enough. He had to depend upon God and, and place himself in the hands and the mercy of God. And to do that, you have to trust God. You have to trust that God's better able to handle the situation than you are. Now, I don't know. I got my ideas, Miss Jerry, of how some circumstances need to be handled. But to trust that God's way is better than my way is the first step in allowing real justice to happen. Because when we act outside of God's leadership, that is not justice, that is revenge. And that's not of God. And so what happens here? David's cry came in a time of sifting. He was going through a very, very difficult time. What do I mean by sifting? You remember in the New Testament, Peter is bold and he's talking to Jesus and Jesus is saying, well, I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter says, no, you're not. That's not going to happen. I'll, I'll die first. And Jesus said, be, be careful, Peter. Satan's sifting your heart right now. He's there. He's, he's shaking you. He's trying to see what's real and what's not. He's trying to separate the, the valuable from the invaluable. If you've never seen sifting, I went to a, a, a flour mill in Baton Rouge. Cargill Company has a big flour mill there, and it, it's 11 stories high. And, and when the the trucks or the, I mean, the trains or the, or the barges come in carrying the grain, it, it has this big vacuum thing, and it sucks the grain up all the way to the top floor, and it goes through these grinders on the top floor, and then it goes out of a chute into the second floor, and it goes into a machine, and the machine basically sits there and shakes back and forth like this, and it has holes in it, and the first holes are pretty good size. And things that should fall through, fall through. And then it goes to the next machine and the next machine, all the way back and forth, winding its way all the way through till the very bottom floor where what comes out is pure flour. 
All that sifting has to happen to separate what you're looking for from what really is also in the mix. And David is going through a time of sifting. David's heart is not what it should be in this moment. In fact, if you know what's happened in David's story to this point, the fact that David is even where he is is a direct result of his own sin with Bathsheba. And now he's paying the consequences of his life's choices. And things are going on and the sifting is happening. And in that sifting, David could have said, well, Lord, didn't I do all these things? And didn't I trust, didn't I, didn't I do this? Didn't I fight Goliath? Wasn't I the king when we made, had this battle? Didn't I make all these decisions that you wanted me to make? Didn't I build this fine palace? All of these things, he could have said all that. But instead, what did he say? He said, Lord, unless you show up, my rock, do not be deaf to me. In the time of sifting, he went to the one who matters. It's interesting that David refers to him as his rock. Why? You remember last week we were talking about Hannah and her prayer for Samuel. She prayed that God would give her a son. He gave her Samuel. And then Samuel would later become the, or would be the last of the, of the judges, and Samuel would be the one that would anoint David to be king. You remember the, the connection in the story. What you may not know, if you didn't read past where we stopped last week, was Hannah had a song of praise after the point of Samuel's birth. And look at what she said in 1 Samuel 2.2 in that. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you. Nor is there any what? Rock. Like our God. The idea of a rock is a sturdy, steady, dependable place. Jesus, in, in the New Testament, in, in Matthew chapter 7, talked about a man building his house upon the rock and upon how much, how much better it would be to be built upon the rock than upon the sand. It's the idea of a dependability. Indeed, there is no one like our God. David's confidence is placed in who God is, in who he is and in what he's doing. Everything in David's life was falling apart. But in spite of that, God was his rock. When things are going difficult in your life and you feel like you need to fix it, the first step that you have to do is you have to come to a place where you realize it's not about you, it's about God's righteousness and what he can do and who he can be. Everything was falling apart. So what about you? When your world's falling apart, do you run to God or do you blame God? Do you look at it and say, God, I've done all these things for you. Why are you not defending me? Or do you say, God, in spite of everything, I still trust in you. I still look to you. I still depend upon you. Because our only hope has to be found in him and his righteousness alone and not our own. It starts here. Prayer for justice and mercy begins with an understanding of who God is. But instead, we've created this image of God in our minds. This idea that that God owes us something. He's not a vending machine or an ATM. God is holy, and His ways are better than ours, and His thoughts are higher than ours. And what He's doing, He's doing for a purpose, and you can trust God. A cry for help is the farthest thing from a demand of, you owe me, God. David realized it was a time of sifting. Secondly, David realized it was a t his cry came in a time of silence. Look at what it says there. 
Hear my cry. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. Back in verse 1. For if you are silent to me, I will become deaf. David's like, Lord, I have to hear from you. I have to know that you are there, that you care. And sometimes in our lives, when we're going through periods where things are falling apart and it's hard for us and we're not really sure what to do, it's in those moments that we need most to hear from God. Now, we're tempted in those moments to do what? To, to go disappear, to hide, and to pretend that we're okay, to even put on a mask. And when somebody asks us, how are we doing? Oh, I'm just blessed. No, you're not. Your husband beat you with a hammer, Right? David knew that in the time of struggling, without God's help, David was as good as dead. He was aware that his need was so intense, so he lifted his hands to heaven, begging for God's intervention. He says, Lord, I'm going. I'm in trouble. If you don't help me, I'm going to go down to the pit. I can picture him in verse 2. When I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary, I can picture him like, pick me up. Help me. I don't remember which one of the kids it was, Deanna. We were at, a neighbor, at one of our deacon's houses in North Carolina. Big swimming pool. And it was Stephen, <laughs> again. <laughs> and Amelia and Taylor were in the pool swimming. And they had got their floaties on. We said, go ahead, jump in. Well, Stephen didn't have his floaties on. And Stephen's like two years old. I am about two years old of my boys. Huh? Glad they're all, I'm glad you're past two, Luke. Stephen bails off into the pool. He has no floaties on, no flotation. He just jumps right in. He had no fear. What did I do? Fully clothed, I jumped right in after him. And when I reached down for him, he reached up for me. And I pulled him out. That's the picture that you see here in this text. David is sinking under the depth of the despair of all the problems that he's facing. He's sinking. He's literally at the point that if God doesn't show up, just like if I hadn't been there to grab Stephen, he would have died. And so he reaches to God. And God reaches to him. David was just saying a prayer. Or was it just saying a prayer? He was fully invested in the moment. It reminds me of the passage in Moses, in Exodus chapter 17, where Moses and the Israelites are fighting the battle, and Joshua's out there, and he's leading the army in the battle, and Moses, as long as he raises his hands to God, the, the victory is going, but at the moment he lowers his hands, then Israel begins to, le- to lose, and so he has to continually lift his hands to God, because only there can he find the true source of his strength. It wasn't in the army, it wasn't in the leaders, it wasn't in their weaponry, it was in the grace of God. And in times of silence, you have to reach out and wrestle with God. In Genesis chapter 32, Jacob wrestled with God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweated blood drops because he was so intensely involved in prayer. David wasn't giving up the fight. He was giving the battle to the one who really owned it anyway. And that's what we have to do. We have to be willing to trust Him. So first, we rely upon His righteousness. Secondly, realize what the issue really is. If you read verses 3 through 5, you'll see that David was facing some pretty significant opposition. And the opposition that David was facing was evil. Why? 
Well, we know the story. David is the king of Israel. His job is to lead the nation of Israel. But that was really, honestly, the, the secondary issue here. What do you mean? The king of the nation is a secondary issue? Absolutely. Because David's importance wasn't in that he was the king of Israel. David's importance was in that he was part of the line of Jesus Christ. And if evil, if Satan could have wiped out David, what would that have done to the line of Christ? And so the opposition that David was facing wasn't primarily his son. His primary opposition was Satan himself and the evil that exists in this world. He uses words in this passage like wicked and iniquity and evil. Now I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. Do not be ashamed to admit that there is evil in our world. We've been bullied and, and told as a, as a culture, in our culture, that we can't declare anyone really guilty of anything. They're all just victims of someone else. Let me tell you something. Evil is real. It is true. Man has demonstrated for years that we're willing to engage in wicked and evil and iniquity. In fact, if you go all the way back in Genesis to where the population was just four, there was a 25% murder rate. From the very beginning, man's hearts are inclined towards evil. And only God's intervention changes that. And so there is evil in our world. We're so consumed with avoiding judging people that we've stopped judging actions. God did die for everyone. Yes, there is hope for everyone. No, there's not a single individual sin that you can commit that will exclude you from the kingdom of God except for dying without receiving his son. And we have our billboard sins that we hold up there, and we say, well, now, if you've done this, then you just, you're beyond God's grace. Let me tell you something. How big is your God? If you can do something that puts you beyond God's grace, the issue isn't the, the things that you do. The issue is the heart behind them. The root of David's opposition was a spiritual issue. It was a spiritual issue. And I want to ask you a question, and I actually think it's so important, I'm going to put it on the screen. Who benefits from a non-judgmental view of good and evil? Who does? Our enemy, Satan. You can say it out loud. This is a participation moment. Who is constantly trying to persuade the human race to rationalize and to justify all sorts of evil? Who's been selling this propaganda since the Garden of Eden? This is not anything new. Solomon wrote, there's nothing new under the sun. From the very beginning, our whole concept of good and evil, of righteousness and unrighteousness, has been influenced by a spiritual being who does oppose you and the church. It is true, people commit actions, but behind those actions, behind that sin, is someone who desires, Jesus said, to see you killed and your joy stolen and destroyed. That's the truth. And of course, all of us recognize that evil exists, but understanding that the evil in our world is ultimately a spiritual battle is key for us. 
Because otherwise, we want to lash out at people. And we want to hold them accountable. Brothers and sisters, we are not judge. It's not our job to hold anyone accountable before the sins that they commit before God, except first God. We have to surrender them and trust God. Look at what Isaiah chapter 5 says. This has been going on forever. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Isaiah wrote that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Our struggle, brothers and sisters, is real. But we need to understand that these people, first and foremost, do not regard the works of the Lord. Look at what David said in verse 5. That's what he says. Why? Why are they doing all this? Why is he asking God to deal with them? Why is he asking for intervention? The first phrase in verse 5, because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the deeds of his hands. In other words, they're saying, I don't really care what God thinks. That attitude comes straight from the pits of hell. Now, they're accountable to it, but it's straight from the pits of hell. Paul said it this way. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our battle, first and foremost, is a spiritual one. And when we realize that, when we recognize that it's really not about the person that has done something wrong to us, then the, the whole question of can I get even goes away and we start to realize that yes, they did wrong, but behind this is a spiritual issue and if I can help them break through the spiritual issue and God can save them, then things can be different in their life. Do you believe that? Can God really change people? Can, can he change anyone? Even a thief on the cross? Even a Roman soldier who's standing there and he says, truly this man is the son of God? Even a persecutor of the church who sought out for the, the imprisonment and the death of believers? Even someone like that can be changed by God? then what about your tormentors, brothers and sisters? What about those that have done you wrong? What about those that have put you in a situation where you feel like somebody needs to vindicate me? Can you bring them before the Lord and realize, yes, they did me wrong, but the issue is first and foremost, not that they did me wrong, but that they have to stand before you because all wickedness is against God first and foremost. It is not against me. You do what you want to to me, but the real issue is between you and God. And you're going to give an account for that. Now, I don't proclaim to know the spiritual reality of Absalom's heart. Scripture doesn't tell us if Absalom is in heaven or hell. But I'll tell you what Scripture does say. Does say, Miss Diane, not does says. I needed water. It is appointed unto man once to die. And then the judgment. And so standing before God, 
I don't believe God would look at Absalom and say, why'd you do that to David first? I think God would look at Absalom and say, do you forget who I am? Do you know who I am? Do you understand who I am? David was aware that it was possible for him to be dragged into the gutter with his enemies. He knew that if he kept his heart towards this, that David could be right there where he was, where Absalom was, and we should never be okay with sin. It's a spiritual issue. David understood that the real issue was that sin was an affront to God. For David, this was a truth that he had learned all too hard. In fact, after his sin with Bathsheba, he wrote in Psalm 51, Against you and you only I have sinned and done evil, or what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David said, Lord, (laughs) you're going to be right because I'm wrong. And he knew that. And so sin is ultimately between the person and God, and it's our job. It's our job to serve God and to stay in his will. And David's prayer here wasn't just, God, vindicate me. David's prayer was, Lord, I'm leaving this in your hands. It is not God's will that evildoers would go unpunished. It's not his will that they prosper. But it's God's job to deal with that and not yours and mine. When we pray for the evil plans of wicked to be frustrated and destroyed, then we pray in perfect alignment with his will. But when we get down in the gutters with them, he says in verse 1, I'll go become like those who go down to the pit. I'll get down there and it'll end up costing me everything. Romans 12, 9 tells us, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, but cling to what is good. It is right to be righteously indignant at the injustice that you see in the world around you. But it is wrong to respond in your own will. It's wrong to try and deal with it yourself and think that you're going to somehow be the instrument of God's righteousness. (coughs) Your job is to trust in God. But then when you do, look at what happens. Thirdly, David's response rejoice in God's response. Look at verse 6. Now he's just prayed, Lord, they don't understand you. They don't regard the works of your hands, nor the deeds of your hands. Tear them down, don't build them up. And then he says, blessed be the Lord. What happened? Man, is there a shift there? Blessed be the Lord who has heard, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. David realized that he could trust God. And he responded by knowing that God's way was better. Blessed you, blessed be you, God. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I'm helped. Therefore, my heart exults, and with my song, I shall thank him. Is that what you do when you're down? The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving defense to his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. So I have a question for you. How big is your God? Can he handle the circumstances or not? 
Can you trust him to vindicate you when you feel like you've been wronged? Can you turn it over to him and in those moments say, I'm just going to trust you, God? Because if you can, this is the kind of response you can have. This is what can happen when you thank God. We live in the moment, guys. And sometimes, let's just be honest, the moment hurts. Sometimes it hurts when people do the wrong thing to us. Sometimes it's painful when we face circumstances that don't seem fair. But God's not the God of just the moment. God is the God of eternity. And He doesn't handle all of His issues on the spot. And let me tell you something, you better be glad that He doesn't. Because what if He had not been patient with you? What if every time you had messed up, God had just said, okay, that's it. And squished you like a bug, Luke. He would be righteous in doing so. He's God. But can you trust Him? Can you depend upon Him in the circumstances? And the circumstances that you face may not appear to be ideal. But God's on the throne. And you can trust Him. And if you know His goodness, if you know His heart, you can rest in it rather than your opinion of the situation. Jesus, in John chapter 11, the situation is Lazarus has been uh, buried. He's in the tomb and they're gathered at the tomb and the, the sisters have, have blamed Jesus for not coming quick enough. And Lazarus was a man whom Jesus loved. It's described in this passage. And, and they're standing there at the tomb and, and they've rolled the stone away. And Jesus is about to call Lazarus forth. And he says, then they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. What do you mean? You're just starting to pray. He says, I know that you always hear me. But because of the people around me, standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. See, Jesus knew he could depend upon his God. He knew he could trust in him. He was praying, thanking him for the results that had not even happened yet. How about that? For God's grace and mercy and justice, before it's even apparent, can you thank him? Can you trust him? Can you depend upon him? David rejoiced not because he knew God's answer. He rejoiced because he knew the God of the answer. He rejoiced because he knew that in spite of what he was facing, he could trust his God. He could depend upon him. And if you know his goodness, rest in it rather than your own opinion of the situation. Don't depend upon your abilities Trust in God, the rock. Depend upon Him. Lean on Him. And when you want to get justice, know that you can call out to Him. At Queen Victoria of England's celebration of her 50th year as a queen, she received kings and princes and leaders from all around the world. And they held a commemoration service at Westminster Abbey. She requested that a song be sung by the head of the Madagascar delegation. And as he began to sing, Queen Elizabeth, uh, Queen Victoria rather, wept openly. What was that song that evoked such a, re a response from Queen Victoria? It was a Christian hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. 
Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. It was first sung in 1763. What you may not know is the words were written by an Anglican cleric whose name was Augustus Toplady. He came to Christ at the age of 16 while he was a student at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland after hearing a sermon entitled, The Lord I Rock. Top Lady was frail and chronically attempt, afflicted with tuberculosis. He rarely knew a day when he was free from pain. He studied for the ministry. He had a passion to preach the gospel. But his illness rendered him too weak to speak, too short of breath to stand in front of a congregation and preach. And he died at age 38, 15 years after writing his famous hymn, Rock of Ages. See, it's a song of a sick and suffering young man who desperately wanted to impact the world for Christ through his words. And he did. It's a song that made tears freely flow down the face of Queen Victoria. And it's a song that recalls the opening lines of another great song. To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. When life doesn't seem fair, when things seem like Nothing is the way it should be. And you feel the need to be vindicated. Trust in God the rock. Lean upon Him. And just from a practical standpoint, because I know some of you are practical. If I had done Sarah wrong, she has a black belt, by the way. If I had done Sarah wrong, I'd much rather face Sarah than face God. Brothers and sisters, give it to God. Some of you are carrying pain. Some of you are carrying hurt. Some of you have been, have been hurt by people in the church. Some of you have been hurt by people in your family. You need to, to turn to David's heart. And say, Lord, I'm going to rest in your righteousness. I'm going to realize that the issue is really a spiritual one. It's not really just between me and that person. It's an issue between them and you. And God, if it's an issue between them and you, then I need to pray for them because they're going to stand before you one day. And when they stand before you, if they don't have the blood of Jesus covering their sins, they're going to spend eternity separated from you in hell. And so God, I'm going to lift them up to you because in spite of what they've done to me, their only hope is you. And then, get up off the mat. Stop wallowing in self-pity and just start blessing the Lord and praising Him for what He's doing in spite of what you're facing. Because on the other side, <laughs> even if it's all the way in heaven, Scripture says He'll wipe the tears from their eyes. Trust in God, your rock. Lean upon Him. Do you know Him in that way? Do you know Him well enough to say that I can trust in Him because He is my Savior and He's my Lord? 
If you don't have that much faith in him, if, if you haven't come to a place where you said, Lord, I need you in my life. This morning, I want to invite you to do that. I'm the last of nine children. And I had five big brothers. They were all big brothers. I'm the runt. And I want to tell you something. I walked around my neighborhood like a rooster. You know what I mean? I strutted my way around because I knew that I had five big brothers. How big is your God? Do you want the confidence that comes with knowing that the ultimate vindicator, that the ultimate hope, that the ultimate promise is that there's a God who loves you and is there for you no matter what you're facing? If you don't have that relationship with God, you need it this morning. And so I'm going to be here in the front, and we'll have some of our our staff and deacons up here. You need to respond to God's call. You need to learn how to trust him in that moment. Maybe some of you just need to come and lay some pain down at the altar and say, God, like David, I'm calling to you. Holy to you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. Hear the voice of my supplications. Blessed be the Lord. Father, as we continue in this time of worship now, would you draw the hearts of those whom you're calling right now? Those who need to respond to you for whatever reason, would you draw them to you in this moment? Let them, Father, feel the the power and the strength and the love and the compassion that you bring to our lives when we turn to you. Have your way with us right now, Lord. In Jesus' name.